Serendipity is all about this idea that we can, in a way, see something the unexpected and then connect the dots and do something with it. These kind of moments where we turn something that is unexpected into some kind of positive outcome and make an accident meaningful, but also what I'm super fascinated by is how we also can obviously make accidents more meaningful, but also create these kind of accidents, um, those positive coincidences. And so that's what it's all about, these kind of positive unexpected outcomes. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is an internationally known expert in the areas of innovation and entrepreneurship. He holds a PhD in networks and entrepreneurship and an MSc in management, both from the London School of Economics. He's currently the director of the Global Economy Program at New York University's Center for Global Affairs, where he teaches on purpose-driven leadership, impact entrepreneurship, social innovation, and emerging markets. Today, he's here to talk about his latest book, The Serendipity Mindset, which develops a science-based framework for individuals and companies to help prompt and leverage positive accidents. So please, help me welcoming our guest today, a man whose presentations and workshops at companies have impacted over 1.2 million people, Dr. Christian Bush. Dr. Bush, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on the show. I really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd love to get into a little bit of your background. So let's talk about what kind of kid you were in high school and what did you think your future would look like while you were in high school? Yeah, well, I was this kind of rebellious kid who you know, try to push every boundary you can push. I had to repeat a year in high school. In fact, I had to change schools, as they called it. Uh, I was essentially expelled. Um, and so didn't find real ways to channel my energy. And um, so I, I still have so much respect for my parents in terms of, you know, enduring me during that time. And um, I think, you know, we had a conversation yesterday about how much, um, you know, parents obviously shape our mindsets. And I think my parents, you know, despite me being that kind of rebellious kid, um, always gave me this feeling of worthiness and, and, and kindness. And so I think there's a lot that, that stuck with me throughout the years. And how different is life now than what you had imagined it would be when you were that age? Extremely different. And, you know, I think, I mean, I had an experience early on in life when I was 18, a, a car crash that kind of completely changed how I looked at the world. I think before that, it was essentially great. Let's live into the day. Let's enjoy everything and, you know, go out and party and everything else. And um, then I had that kind of car crash and uh, I realized, wow, life can be over at any point, right? You can um, run in front of a car every day. And so it put me on this intense search for meaning and trying to figure out what is life all about? 
Um, what can I do in this world that is somehow meaningful? And so if I would ever again run in front of a car or have any other kind of accidents, uh, it hopefully would have been worth it by then. And, and you know, after you went through that accident, did you kind of get your, your act together? Like what, what, what was the journey like from, from that rebellious teenager to now, you know, Dr. Christian Bush? What, what happened during that period? Yeah, I started reading a lot, a lot of Viktor Frankl. Um, so he has this wonderful book, um, Man's Search for Meaning. And I got extremely inspired but because it has this idea of finding meaning in every situation, finding meaning, especially in crises. And so it kind of really got me onto this, okay, trying to find my own meaning, my own purpose. And, and, and um, you know, I, I realized what I enjoy doing the most is bringing people together, connecting ideas, connecting kind of things and ideas and dots um, and so, you know, I started out as a community builder and then over time kind of entrepreneur, social entrepreneur, and then went to academia and all of this was all about kind of how do we try to understand how dots connect, but also enable others to, to connect those in meaningful ways. So speaking of connecting dots and seeing how things connect, let's jump into serendipity. How do you define serendipity? What, what is this thing? Yeah, so serendipity is really this kind of smart luck. So it's very different from the blind luck that's all about the idea of essentially, you know, inheriting something, being born into a good family, that's kind of things we can't really influence, right? It's the kind of passive happening to us type luck. But serendipity is all about this idea that we can, in a way, see something the unexpected and then connect the dots and do something with it. So, you know, this kind of quintessential situation, if you have erratic hand movements like me, you, you spill coffee all the time, right? So imagine yourself being in a coffee shop, spilling that coffee over someone next to you, and you sense that kind of connection. You sense there might be something there. And now you have two options, right? To, to react to this unexpected situation, you could either say, oh, I'm so sorry, here's a napkin. And then you walk outside and you're like, ah, I should have talked with this person. I should have you know, kind of continued some kind of conversation. Or the other option is, you know, you say something like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was kind of so focused on my on XYZ book that I've just been reading and blah, blah, and you start a conversation and see where it leads. And maybe that's where you find your love or your co-founder or something else. And so it's really these kind of moments where we turn something that is unexpected into some kind of positive outcome and make an accident meaningful. But also what I'm super fascinated by is how we also can obviously make accidents more meaningful, but also create these kind of accidents, um, those positive coincidences. And so that's what it's all about, these kind of positive, unexpected outcomes. So, yeah, there's like that that dumb luck, blind luck, which you kind of have no real control over. And then there's the luck that comes from the unique character and unique actions that you take that kind of just are kicking up dust and and you are there to take advantage of all that dust that you've kicked up. So that that's kind of what serendipity is. Exactly, exactly. So you talk about uh, three different types of serendipity in your book. If you're able to 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 share that 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 those three types with us, that would be awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's really about the question of am I already looking for something or. Um, you know, is something completely different. And so um, what does that mean? Imagine some kind of situation where you're like, you know, you're looking for a job, right? So you're looking for something out there already. And then you bump into someone in a coffee shop who tells you about a new job, coincidentally, right? That person you spilled the coffee over maybe might be that, that person, right? And so in a way, you already had a certain problem out there that you that you wanted to do something with, but actually then kind of something unexpected happens and you relate it to that bigger problem. So that happens a lot of times in companies, for example, let's say you have a bigger purpose where you try to go or some kind of sense of direction, then you bump into someone and you know still where you want to go, but in a way it kind of changes how you get there or, or, or what you do about it, um, which is very different from the kind of, you know, let's say you're strolling around and you're actually quite happy in your life. 
and then you bump into someone who tells you about something completely different. Hey, look, um, I just opened up a shop in Nicaragua. Do you want to come over and, and spend your life there? And you're like, oh, okay. You know, and, and, and so you're kind of related to that your brother maybe wanted to anyways build a business there or whatever it is, and, and that serendipity happens. And so the three forms like, are really all about the question, did you already imagine somewhere where you want to go or did you kind of think about something that, that you know, came completely randomly up? Um, and I think that the reason why, it, you know, it doesn't really matter which type of serendipity happens, but what matters is I think this idea that a lot of times, especially when you're in companies or, you know, when you're kind of having some goal in mind, it does help us to connect dots better and smarter because it kind of helps us to imagine what we could relate something to versus just kind of wandering around and, and, and searching around. So it sounds like these different types of, of serendipity, they, they share some core characteristics. So does serendipity have an anatomy? And if so, what does that anatomy look like? Yeah, that's a great question. It really comes to the point of when we think about it as something active, we see that it's essentially a process, right? It's something where something unexpected happens. So this kind of trigger, the serendipity trigger, like spilling the coffee or whatever, running into a person at a conference, these kind of things. And now it's all about doing something with it, right? Connecting the dots. So in a way, that kind of active element of it but then also it's about having the tenacity to actually do something with it and, and turn that into something, right? So if I run into you at a conference and you tell me about your, your great podcast and you're like, hey, great, I'm doing this, like I still then have to, you know, say, oh my God, such a coincidence. I just wrote a book about, you know, literal coincidence so we should connect. And then again, it, it's up to both of us to have the tenacity to follow up on this, making it happen, right? And so a lot of times we can miss serendipity at every step. We might not see it in the moment um, or we might then just not follow up on it and then kind of get distracted and, and not get there. And so I think that's the beauty of it that then at every step we can do something. We can create more of these triggers. We can learn how to connect the dots, but also we can work on our grit and our tenacity. What's up, artists? I would love to hear from you. Feel free to send me an email to theartistsofdatascience at gmail.com. Let me know what you love about the show. Let me know what you don't love about the show. And let me know what you would like to see in the future. I absolutely would love to hear from you. I've also got open office hours that I will be hosting. And you can register by going to bitly.com com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to hearing from you all and i look forward to seeing you in the office hours let's get back to the episode and talk about this really interesting concept actually the first time i heard of this this concept this word the by association so can you kind of describe that to us and then how is it similar or different to then in association? Yeah, yeah. It's a great question. I mean, in the end, it's all about connecting dots, right? And it's all about saying, what is that kind of moment where like you, you bring two potentially previously disparate things together, right? And so I think a lot of times we think of this as like one moment where, you know, this eureka moment when you're like, uh, in the shower on on a Sunday, and like you, you, you like slightly like something connects, and you're like, oh my god, like such a coincidence now this is connecting, um, and so what what's happening there obviously is in your brain kind of different synapses and others other things kind of connected and like literally dots, right? And and that's the same in like real life when we try to connect some information to some other information, like in a way we're bringing them together and merge them into into something. And the reason I'm, I'm excited about it is because if you think about everything from creativity to how new ideas emerge to like how 
up to 50% of inventions and innovations happen. Usually it is because people are able to connect dots to something. And so, you know, take an example like Viagra where, you know, kind of researchers look for something completely different. They gave people medication they, they, against angina. They realized there was some kind of movement happening in male participants' trousers. And then instead of just saying, oh my God, this is kind of like embarrassing and this is something we should ignore or find a better way to cure angina, they said, you know what? Like they bisociated, they, they, they connect the dots. They said, you know what? There's a lot of people in the world who might have that problem. So why don't we like make a medication around this? And so that kind of connecting the dots is really what's, what's, what's exciting about it. It seems like the key to, to doing that is having that, that open mind to be able to look at things, not just from a tunnel vision type of um, perspective. Uh, so like, what would be some of the biggest barriers or blockers to prevent us from thinking in this way? Well, I mean, if you if you think about, I mean, all of us have have quite a few biases, right? I mean, if we want or not. I mean, I I realized when kind of going on this journey, like how many assumptions I have that are just not true, right? So, for example, one being we constantly underestimate how probable it is that the improbable happens. So how 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 the unexpected happens all the time, right? So like all the time there, and and I think COVID probably is like the biggest reminder of this, right? That like there's only so much we can plan. And if, if you look at your CV, for example, you know, you might tell it as a story where you went from this job to this job to this job. Yeah, but you know what? If you really look at it, it probably you ran into someone who told you about something, then you jumped somewhere else. And so it's really this kind of thing where we constantly underestimate the unexpected and how often it happens. And what it does then is, a, we don't realize a lot of times when it's there, and so we don't do something with it. But also when it happens, it doesn't like fit into our stories. And so we, a lot of times, kind of try to make it into a story where we control more than we actually did. And so one of the things that I'm super excited about is this question of how do we get away from this idea of post-rationalizing everything, where we try to kind of, in a way, always pretend that we had it all mapped out and then tell the story as if we all had it all figured out which in a way make, makes us all lie to each other, right? Because if you look at the, like what a lot of CEOs do, right? They go to their board and they say, oh, great, like this was my plan and I did exactly what I wanted to do. And everyone knows that like they couldn't have known all of this. And, and so one of the reasons I'm so excited about this idea of cultivating serendipity is that in a way what you're doing is you're taking away the illusion of control. You're taking away this idea that you can plan everything out. But what you're doing is you're saying, you know what, give us a sense of direction, give us an idea of where we're going, but at the same time create a culture that allows us to be ready for the unexpected because then essentially you're not losing control, quite the opposite. You're incorporating the unexpected into everything you're doing. And so I think then essentially once we overcome this bias, to not underestimating the unexpected, we can create this muscle that this muscle that allows us to essentially make the best out of it. So one thing I really appreciated about in your book was the fact that you're so open and vulnerable with your story, talking about the struggles you had as a rebellious high schooler, and then your not so linear path to where you are uh, today. I really appreciated that. And it actually has given me courage and strength to really talk about my story more openly, because much like you, I was a very rebellious high schooler. Like i didn't initially graduate high school. And then I had several missteps along the way. And, you know, anybody that lands on my LinkedIn page looks at it, just, it looks like a clear just story, right? But there's so much that happened in between there that uh, is, is, it's just not there. And I've just, because of, of you sharing, I've just been, been more open to, uh, to embracing that that part of my, my history. Thank you for that. And speaking about being able to see the connections and being able to see those things happen, um, you've got this concept in your book about um, alertness. Uh, so talk to us a little bit more about uh, alertness and how this 
promote serendipity? Yeah, and, and uh, obviously I'm, I'm really excited to hear that, that somehow, I mean, one of the hopes I have with this kind of book is really to say, at the end of the day, we all have a certain narrative of self, but at the same time, we also all go through similar struggles from time to time, right? And, and, and it's, it's, it's perfect. I mean, you know, I, 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 so I, I work a lot at the moment, um, especially with kind of uh, high school kids and others around the question of how do we make sure that everyone feels it's okay to wing it at times. It's okay to not always be perfect. It's okay to, and so I'm, I'm really kind of, I'm, I'm grateful that you say that because I feel it's, it's one of the biggest like hopes I have with, with, with the book to say we can all, in a way, we all feel like imposters at times. We all feel like, you know, um, that we haven't figured it all out and that's fine, right? That's, that's kind of really something. Um, so, so, so that's really um, very close to my heart. Um, with regard to alertness, I mean, something that um, I found fascinating is so I'm a big fan of this experiment, maybe to, to bring that point home where people took, so a colleague took uh, people who self-identify as extremely lucky and people who self-identify as extremely unlucky. And they took one of each and they said, what? walk down the street, go into the coffee shop, grab a coffee, sit down, and then we'll have an interview at some point. What they didn't tell them is that there's hidden cameras across the street, that there's a five pound note in front of the door. So, so there's, there's money in front of the door. And then there's only one table in the coffee shop uh, next to this extremely successful businessman who's, who can make a lot of ideas happen and, and dreams happen. And so um, now the lucky person walks down the street uh, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside the coffee shop, has a conversation with the barista, uh, sits down next to the businessman, has a nice conversation, they exchange business cards, potential opportunity coming on. We don't know that part. Um, the unlucky person just walks down the street, steps over the five pound note, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, the other person's left, ignores the businessman, that's that. At the end of the day, they ask both people, so how was your day today? And so the lucky person says, it was amazing. I found money in the street, made new friends, and you know, potential opportunity coming out of it. We don't know that. The unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And you know, that's kind of like a lot about this idea that A, the, the quote-unquote lucky person that frames the world as something where potentially good things can happen actually sees those unexpected things more because they expect them to potentially be there. And so it opens our idea of, okay, there are things out there that could be there. Um, and, you know, a lot of things, we can talk about this later, how we then, once we are alert to these kind of things, you know, we see opportunity in diversity, in, in adversity and so on. Um, but I'm, I'm a big, big fan of, of this idea that, at the end of the day, in every situation, there's always something in there, even if it doesn't seem at that moment, that over the long run can potentially trigger some kind of serendipity or at least something that, that can be positive. And so, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work and I've, I'm very close with people who have lost kind of, you know, people around them or who have had very bad luck. And the interesting thing is a lot of times those moments then are the moments where either those moments frame the person or the person frames the moment in their life. And, and I think that to me is like a biggest thing because obviously we can never blame someone for bad luck and we can never, you know, all of us, I think, at our lives at some point have bad luck. Um, there's structural constraints. There's a lot of different things that we cannot influence. But one thing we can influence is our reaction to the unexpected. And I think like what I'm really curious always about is to see how do we train ourselves to see something in the unexpected always, especially if it's bad luck, that we can turn into something positive. And so that's really about this kind of being alert to these kind of opportunities that are in the unexpected, being at a five pound note on the floor, being at, you know, uh, these kind of different types of potential triggers that could be there. It's interesting how much self-talk can influence these type of opportunities and influence these, um, the way you perceive things. Like, like what's the importance of, of that self-talk when it comes to 
to creating our own good luck and creating our own serendipity. Um, it's interesting because, you know, um, if, if you think about, so if I think about, um, you know, my own life, but also the life that I've, I've seen a lot of people live, I will not forget I had a, a wonderful conversation in, in London with a gentleman at some point who, you know, asked him, so how often do you have serendipity? And, he, you know, he works like in, in a restaurant and, and he's a great guy. And I asked him and he was like, well, before I was 25, never. And after I was 25 all the time, and I asked, like, what, what changed? What changed? And he was like, well, look, before I was 25, I never acted on, even if I saw something unexpected that could be positive, I didn't act on it because I didn't feel worthy. I didn't feel ready. I didn't feel, you know, all these different things. And then I went through a journey of, you know, surrounding myself with people who were more optimistic um, because the people who, who also told me, look, you don't have to be in that idea that's because he grew up in this environment where his parents would tell him um, people like us are not supposed to work in X, Y, Z. People like us will always be in service. Like we are not the kind of people who do X, Y, Z different. And, and so this, and so there was this kind of whole like idea in his head. I, I'm not worthy of this kind of opportunity. I'm not worthy of X, Y, Z. And so then kind of he went through this journey of both surrounding himself with people, um, with different people, but also kind of telling himself and starting to really go into this journey of, of building his own self-confidence. And what was fascinating was that, you know, people would always, like he, he used to work as a waiter, and people would always tell him about like things and always say, let me introduce you to this person, so and so and so and so. He would always say, no, 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 I'm not, I don't want to. And once he started doing it then, because of this kind of journey he went through, it started to happen. I think that kind of like, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of these kind of um, stories and patterns where, in a way, um, again, there's structural constraints a lot of times, and I think we have to be super aware of that. And then I think a lot of times, especially for, for us, right, in our surroundings, there's a lot of times these kind of self-limiting beliefs also in terms of how, how to, you know, um, um, not go. And so I think this kind of whole importance of also, you know, seeing ourselves creating a new narrative of self um, is, is super important. Did- do you think there's a relationship between uh, the reticular activating system in the, in the brain and, and serendipity that uh, makes it possible for us to see these opportunities? Like if we're constantly talking to ourselves in a positive way, we're constantly having good, good thoughts and then just thinking of ways that we can connect things and we're just going to see, see more opportunities to connect things in the outside world. It's a great question. And, you know, it's, uh, what I found fascinating on this journey of, 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 of kind of diving deep into those themes is that in a way, sciences, you know, everything from kind of neuroscience to psychology to, um, to quantum physics to spirituality increasingly say the same thing, right? That in a way, like when you kind of put yourself into a certain motion, um, then essentially like something becomes more probable, right? It's like entropy, like like the bicycle, right? If you don't ride a bicycle, it falls. And, and so like you have to constantly, continuously go and, and do something about it. And the same with like, you know, in psychology, to your point, right? If you, um, if you visualize things, if you, if you literally manifest things in your, in your mind um, and, and kind of start doing it, you, you start seeing more things that could relate to it. You start seeing things kind of like going into that way. And again, then energetically similar, right? Once you kind of like, like then, you know, people react to, to energy, right? And so it's kind of, I think like to your question, that I think the beautiful thing is that all these different perspectives like all say the same thing, that yes, like in a way, once you put yourself on a trajectory like this, even if it's tough, right? I mean, I look, I had COVID in, in, in March, like it was a really bad period. I couldn't breathe. I had 911 on speed dial. It was really like, it's the kind of period where you're like, yeah, easy to say good energy and X, Y, Z, but 
what do you do when you're in a really bad place? But I, I reread the Viktor Frankl, right? The, and, and this guy, he survived the Holocaust. He was in a concentration camp. And even in that kind of moments, he still kind of found this way of saying, hey, look, I will still every day talk with at least one other person to make them feel better about themselves. And by doing that, that gives me meaning. And I think that kind of reminded me, right, that in every situation, you can always reframe something. You can always still do something. And at that moment, it was about, okay, if I'm sitting here in my bed and I can't properly breathe, can I then, like, what can I do with this? Is there something that, you know, can I, can I re-anchor myself in the meaning that I've had last time when I had an incident like this, which kind of showed me how close death can be and so on. And so I think, you know, in a way, to your point that I think we, we, if we can use these moments to, to, to remember um, that in a way we can frame the world in a certain way, um, that probably helps us. I mean, since then, like I've been again on a kind of, yay, like, you know, I want to shape the world again, because again, it was a reminder how quickly life can be over. I'm so glad that you uh, recovered from that with no ill effects. It's uh, it's definitely a scary time, and I can't imagine uh, suffering that. Um, and yeah, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, excellent, excellent read. Highly recommend it to anybody that's listening. Um, that was kind of like my introduction to like Stoic philosophy and Stoicism, and it got me really deep into into that. And um, yeah, just absolute beautiful operating system for life, um, to put it plainly, I guess. Um, so. I know something that uh, my audience is really going to be interested in is talking about the importance of the why and how we can do a better job at defining problem statements. Yeah. And that's an interesting question, both in terms of, you know, if you think about individuals and then if you, let's say, build your startup or if you kind of create a team or, you know, so in a way the collective why and the individual why, because I mean, if you think about it, um, why are we, so if we look at it in terms of both in a way, the bigger why in the sense, in terms of like, hey, here's a sense of direction, here's like a way of how we can then understand how to connect something with, um, I, you know, Paul Pullman has always been really good at this, the, the guy who has been, who ran Unilever for a long time. Um, you know, he had this kind of idea of the reason I'm here in this world is because I want to help other people help themselves if, if they're in XYZ position. And so if people would come with new projects, he would always think about, okay, does this project really relate to this? If it doesn't relate to this, it doesn't work. And so the why gives us a beautiful filter um, to filter projects, to filter ideas, um, and to also avoid distraction, right? Because too much serendipity can, can really distract it. But also to your point of problem statements, I think what's interesting is that a lot of times if we, you know, over-specify problems or over-specify things, in a way we're completely decreasing the potential opportunity space, right? Because if I tell you, I don't know, decrease costs and we just have to kind of like, you know, um, make more money, then you think in those terms and you think about how can I fire people, how can I do X, Y, Z. But if I tell you our bigger purpose is X, Y, Z, and now find me every way to either make more profit or to cut costs or, you know, uh, sorry, make more revenues or cut costs or whatever it is, um, you become much more creative. And I think it's these kind of things where a lot of times it's, it's the question of, you know, how do we make sure that people know why they're doing something, but also how do we not overdefine problems in ways that then limit how people can think about solutions to whatever problem we define for them. Absolutely love that portion of the book. That was uh, really, really insightful. Uh, thanks for digging into that for uh, the audience there. So jumping now into a kind of, I guess, more maybe the anatomy-ish of serendipity, uh, this concept of a serendipity trigger. Uh, you you talk, talk to us about what that 
that means, what that serendipity trigger is, and how it comes down to asking two basic questions. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, if you think about, like, how do you essentially, you know, put some kind of dots out there that essentially potentially could create serendipity, right? Because, again, triggers a lot of times happen and we can't influence them, right? COVID, we couldn't influence. If a volcano breaks out, we can't influence. If a hurricane happens, we can't influence. And then it's mostly our reaction to that. But I think the part that I'm most excited about is how do we create dots for us and for others? And so one example, um, just to kind of show how that is in practice, is, is setting hooks, right, or casting hooks, where essentially what you would do is something like, hey, look, um, there's this amazing entrepreneur in London, Ollie Barrett. And if you would ask him something like, what do you do? Um, you know, the dreaded question we get at conferences and wherever we are, um, he would tell you something like, well, look, like I'm a tech entrepreneur, but recently started reading into the philosophy of science, but what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. And so what he's doing here is he's giving you three potential dots where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. I just started playing the piano. Let's hang out and do a piano matinee. Or such a coincidence, my brother wrote a book on philosophy of science and is looking for a new person to help them out, whatever it is. The point is that he gives you three potential dots that he can connect, uh, that, that you can connect for him. And so in a way, you, you can see these different triggers out there um, and, and have others connect the dots. And I think that was one of the things that I was most surprised um, by when, when doing that work, that I always assumed connecting the dots and, and, and kind of seeding things is up to us. But actually, if we seed a couple of dots, others can connect the dots for us. And so it's, 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 it's the teamwork of giving people excuses to connect the dots for us as well. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, love that part. And I started including in um, some correspondences with, uh, with different publicists that I talk to on you know, behalf of getting guests on the, on the podcast. I started saying, I'm not just into data science people. I actually, these are the other type of topics I like to talk about and uh, just started doing that. And just more people started coming through the funnel. So that's uh, pretty awesome. So I really like this quote you have in the book. Um, I don't know if you re recall it or not, but it's uh, information is at the core of life's opportunities. I thought that was uh, such a very beautiful quote. Talk to us about what that means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I, I, a lot of times I think about this from the perspective of introverts as well, because, you know, we, we always like assume that, that extroverts are favored when it comes to serendipity, right? Because as an extrovert or more extrovert, I mean, let's assume it's a continuum and some of us are more extrovert others. I'm a closet introvert. So I'm the kind of person who, you know, I give a speech and then I hide in the toilet afterwards because I, you know, it's, it's too much at some point. And so it's these kind of things where um, as a closet introvert, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is where does serendipity really happen? And like serendipity happens, yes, when you bump into people, when you put yourself out there, when you keep in touch with people. But a lot of times it also comes out of silent sources, right? It's the information that might be in a book. It might be the information that is kind of like, uh, you know, that you create because you see something in a kind of window, shop window when you take another street. And so I think that the beautiful thing about serendipity is that a lot of times it's about connecting pieces of information in unexpected ways, right? And, and, and really making sense out of them. And so I think what I'm super excited about is exactly how do we essentially, you know, um, put kind of informational pieces out there. And I think especially, you know, if you think about um, coders, when they think about, or, or you know, you, you talked about data scientists, I think it's so much about how do you smartly give people pieces of information that they can do something with that they can that helps them connect the dots versus just kind of like you know um, um, putting it there. So I think 
the, the, the core idea is really that it's not necessarily only about knowledge that's power, but it's really kind of the informational things that, that get seeded where then you can create knowledge out of it unexpectedly. Uh, yeah, I absolutely love that part because uh, I just like putting ideas into my head. So just reading books, listen to audio books, just anything I can get my hands on that just uh, gets some good, I guess it's like fertilizer for the garden of the mind, I guess <laughs> is uh, one way to look at it. So I'm also very, very much a uh, an introvert. I mean, I do this podcast plus doing office hours for my network of 2,500 mentees and it becomes very draining. Um, I have no energy to truly engage in any social interactions um, by the end of the week. And it becomes harder now because we live in this COVID world. What can we do to put ourselves in situations where we can find people to connect with? Yeah, that's a great question. By the way, 2,500 mentees, I mean, that's, uh, you can be quite proud of that, right? I mean, that's pretty impressive. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because I feel a lot of the things that we can do in quote unquote offline life, we can do online as well, right? In terms of uh, how do we respond to questions by seeding different types of information? How do we uh, ask questions differently? So in terms of when you are on a Zoom call and, and meet a new person, you know, like how do you understand their interests and motivations versus just like, okay, what do you do and all these different types of things. But also then in a way, um, you know, I'm a big fan of kind of social roulette, for example, where um, startups have started uh, to connect people randomly across the organization who don't know each other yet. So you essentially you put like, uh, yeah, I'm free on Friday at 10 o'clock and then another person is free then. They just match them up, give them an inspirational question and they they meet for lunch. And so that's kind of the, the typical water cooler moment, right? Which doesn't happen at the moment, but you can create that um, online a little bit like like that. Um, I'm also a big fan of, of literally like, like using every conversation, every interaction to think proactively about, okay, Everything that someone tells me, how do I not take it only at face value, but how do I constantly think about what is behind this? What are the assumptions and how does this relate to someone or something I know? And so um, something that I've seen with myself and others, what we create the most serendipity when we think constantly about how does this relate now some, to something I've read, to something I talk with, with a friend and how can I introduce them to someone and something. And so I think like getting with this mind of constantly connecting the dots um, can help everywhere because then every Zoom call, every conversation becomes something that can be fun because you're like, oh, I thought I talked with this person a hundred times, but by slightly changing how I, how I go into this, there's so many new things that are coming out of it. And, you know, there's a lot of tactics and strategies and I'm sure, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear, by the way, which one your favorites are, but um, from, from, from the book, but I think in, in general, um, you know, I'm a big fan of not adding something to our repertoire, not adding, uh, you know, we're all busy, we all have to do a lot of things, but, but really kind of like slightly reframing how we have our day-to-day -day conversations, how we connect with people. And I think that's, that's where a lot of the magic happens. Yeah. I really like the, uh, the, the flipping the networking on its head where instead of saying, Oh, what do you do? You ask one of these more interesting type of questions like, Oh, what are you currently inspired by? Um, you know, like I recently, very recently after reading your book, switched up the questions to my random round, uh, because the ones you had in there in the, in the networking section were just like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like, you know, what are you most excited about right now? What are you currently exploring? What are you inspired by? Uh, really, really great questions. I never thought about, um, ever going beyond that. You know, what do you do? Um, some really good tips in there for, for the people like me who are not good at small talk. 
So really appreciate that. And the thing is, you don't even need like a large network in order for you to find people to connect with, right? Um, and then you can find meetup groups online. You could join groups on LinkedIn, just find some way to connect with people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing that I really, really enjoyed in the book um, was this concept of a disjunction strategies that we can use to foster serendipity. There's that uh, remixing, rebooting, deconstruction. Um, wanted to wonder if you can get into those for us. Um, like that concept of remixing that aligns so well with my worldview. Um, a few months back, I read this real cool book by Austin Kleon, uh, Steal Like an Artist, and uh, kind of helped foster my worldview of everything being a remix. Uh, so it was really cool to see that in your book. Uh, but can you share that with the audience first, those three concepts, remixing, rebooting, and deconstruction? Yeah, it's interesting. And I love that that you kind of directly have that new life happening. And because obviously, I mean, you know, the, the whole idea is, you know, how do you learn from things like filmmaking and, and, and the arts to, you know, take different types of perspective on things. And I think you know, um, the, the, the thing that I've been most excited about is um, I've seen that a lot when I used to work in startups, right? We, we kind of, um, we would work on something and then from time to time go into another coffee shop or go into somewhere else just to kind of have a slightly different kind of setting that then kind of inspires slightly different. And so, you know, these three strategies are just about the degree of how much you essentially, you know, radically change a perspective or a story or a narrative and everything else. But what I always found fascinating is, in a way, how you can create exactly those moments, right? And how you completely shift perspective, how you, you know, this kind of, a friend of mine told me yesterday about how they, um, you know, uh, I, unfortunately, I haven't been that much into this kind of um, uh, kind of superhero, what's the name of this kind of, uh, you know, the, like where all the superheroes come together. and, and Avengers. They, Yes, exactly, exactly. And, and so, you know, I found it fascinating because, you know, this idea of like that you, you have these different narratives and then you, you have a meta narrative and then depending on this, you kind of like reinvent stories of people or the history of someone, but also you, you have that core narrative of someone. And I find it fascinating because if you think about your own life and how often, you know, we in our life, when you go through a midlife crisis, how you quote unquote try to reinvent yourself. And, but how do you do that? Do you keep the core, right? Which would be kind of the, the, the lesser type strategy where you say, oh, I'm, I'm keeping my core, my core values and everything else. And I'm just adjusting, um, you know, going from banking into, uh, into consulting or something like that. Or do I completely kind of re like frame everything and, and do I become a new person and something like this? And so I think, you know, the, like in the book, it's three different strategies, but I think it's much better probably now that I think of it as a continuum in terms of saying, like, how much do you want to change something up and how radical are you ready to, to let go of something that you have um, and, and, and embrace that? And I think um, I've, I've been a big fan doing that personally, but also in companies, you know, how much of your legacy do you have to let go? How much of your story, quote unquote, do you have to rewrite in order to kind of like be able to get somewhere where, where you want to be? Uh, but I, I'd really love to hear like how you, you know, how you uh, experienced that. And, and that sounded very curious, like interesting. I guess when it comes to remixing, um, one, one thing I do constantly in data science, right, is, uh, so I've, I've worked currently as, you know, in, in a manufacturing industry, but previously I've worked in e-commerce, I've worked in um, insurance, and I've worked in pharmaceuticals, um, all as statistician, data scientist type of roles, right? Um, so just being able to step away from the minute details of the problem and say, okay, wait, 
this thing that we're doing in e-commerce, for example, this churn analysis, hmm, this reminds me of something I was doing as a biostatistician. It looks a lot like survivor analysis, right? So making those connections um, between these different problem statements in different domains, like they might use different words and their colloquial type of language to describe what's going on in their world, but there's parallels to what you're working on. And if you can see those, then you can remix a solution, remix a methodology from one domain and apply it to your domain and apply it to your problem statement. And that's the biggest way I've seen that, at least for remixing. Um, and also just, even when it comes to just like writing stuff for me is like definitely a remix, right? Like, you know, I'll be doing reaction pieces to uh, some of the books that I read and parts of it will come from uh, the actual book I'm reading. Parts of it will come from another book. And it's just like all kind of mixed in together. And it's just me eating it up, digesting it, regurgitating it out in, with my own kind of voice. Um, so yeah, that's the biggest way I've, I've seen the remixing stuff. Um, or even just taking like, uh, <laughs> taking like, like quote graphics and pictures and combining them together for a promotional piece for the podcast. Right, like, you know, just colliding these different ideas together. I think that really is like the foundation of creativity is just taking things that don't look like they uh, belong together and just smashing them into each other. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think you might be familiar with uh, Dr. Camilla Pang. She wrote the book, Explain yes, Humans. Right yeah, so right she, was, uh, she was on the podcast as well, releasing an episode with her a few weeks ago. And she does that very well. She takes ideas and just smashes them together and just explains something in such a new, fresh way. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, everything's a remix, everything. Uh, so I think, I think by now my, my audience knows that I have a deep affinity for, for the Stoics and Stoic philosophy. And I was really happy uh, when you mentioned one of my absolute favorite Stoics in, in your book, Seneca. Uh, so what can Seneca teach us about serendipity? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because if you if you think about um, the kind of key virtues right now around like wisdom, justice, courage, like you know these kind of key things that are at the core of it. Um, one of the things that that I think is is obviously interesting about serendipity is how much it is about um, being able to be courageous in some way, right? We talked about things like you know even vulnerability. I mean, I'm a big fan of of, of Beanie Brown. Uh, um, about how, in a way, you know, the most courageous thing you can do is to be vulnerable, right? And and I think um, um, w when you think about this, so I'm reframing now. Obviously, the Stoics probably would would uh, stone me to death to to kind of uh, uh, go into that direction. But but I think I mean, serendipity is all about somehow sagacity, and it is all about kind of seeing something in the moment and making sense out of it. But also then, you know, again, having the the, the tenacity to 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 go through with it. Um, but I want to kind of take that to, to Brittany Brown, because I think maybe particularly for your listeners, I think that's, that's the kind of thing where um, if you think about, so we just did a study with 40 of the, the top CEOs in the world that run companies like MasterCard, Procter & Gamble, like really big companies. And, you know, we, we essentially try to understand what do they all have in common? And a lot of them actually have a couple of things in common. A, they are, a lot of them are practical philosophers. So they ask why all the time. Like they are constantly kind of like why, 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 questioning assumptions all the time. Um, and then kind of real wisdom actually coming out of the idea that, hey, at the end of the day, nobody has really figured everything out. So we have to constantly question assumptions and go about it. But also then the kind of like 
a lot of times they, I don't know what a good word for that is, but they have the courage to be not always right in the sense that they create an environment of, of psychological safety where they say, okay, at the end of the day, you know, um, we, we have this sense of reaction here, but also we have not figured it all out. And so there, there's this slight element of vulnerability of we're not perfect, we're not all here. But that it, 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 it gives people the excuse then to kind of come up with new ideas that, that help them kind of shape their strategies and everything else. And I think in our own lives also, right, that's at the core of a lot of these kind of life experiences of saying, you know, we, we can't have all this, this, this figured out, but we can certainly kind of somehow um, you know, develop a mindset for um, for for them um, being able to to cope with it um, and and not seeing it as imperfection. And I think that to me, or, or seeing it or seeing imperfection as something that actually can be positive. And I think that to me, you know, is at a lot of the, these kind of at the core of a lot of these conversations around saying at the end of the day. They, um, you know, if you see everything, I think Hubert Julie, who's the, the former chairman of Best Buy, he had this beautiful thing around meeting a monk, right? And and he met that monk and the monk essentially told him, you people, like, you're so brutal to each other because you you always want everything to be perfect. But this is very inhumane because essentially everyone who's not perfect then becomes a problem, right? Because you you say yeah, it has to be perfect versus why when you allow for a little bit of imperfection and and, and don't see that as a problem, uh, that's actually where then you, you start seeing something in the unexpected and, and, and turn that into, into positive outcomes. I'm rephrasing that in a way that the monk probably wouldn't be overly excited about. But um, point here being that I think the courage that comes from being vulnerable and the courage that comes from admitting that you haven't had it all figured out then empowers other people as well because it, it gives them the license to come up with new ideas and, 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 and so on. So what tips would you have then for someone who is like, on a team environment and maybe they're scared of looking like they don't know something, uh, but they don't want to openly communicate this. What would you tell somebody who's in that mindset? Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, I grew up in a country where, you know, we get trained in the idea of avoid uncertainty, avoid ambiguity, plan everything. So I'm from Germany. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of like, you don't like especially as a guy right you don't grow up saying oh you admit kind of these kind of things right and so i think one of the things i found extremely um kind of helpful for for myself also is to think about like what is what is that kind of degree that i feel comfortable like what is what is it that what are the areas where i'm okay to feel vulnerable versus what are the areas where i don't feel okay to be vulnerable and i think in my case for example um, I feel much more comfortable being vulnerable in areas where I'm really good at because essentially what I can then say is like, hey, look, here's my vulnerability. Here's um, how I've overcome some of this. And here's, quote unquote, success around this and, and, and everything else. Versus, you know, in areas where I don't have that, I'm like, yeah, let me talk about it once I kind of like get to the other side of it. Um, and so I think um, one of the things is I think a lot of times to give an example um, one of the organizations I admire um, is Reconstructed Living Labs in South Africa. It's essentially former drug addicts um, and, and others who kind of extremely vulnerable people potentially, but who said, okay, we will develop a low-income education solution here that we can take into other communities and that enables people like us to become teachers and to do like, hey, these are five steps of how to use social media. These are five steps of how to build a business. And so essentially a very simple way to quote unquote become empowered and then to become a teacher and to become who you can become. And what I found fascinating about it is that just this idea that in a way you see the potentiality of what could be 
and you, you, you bring that into different contexts. Um, I've seen that with myself as well. Like as soon as I realize there is potentiality, I reframe situations away from, oh, I'm just X, Y, Z, or, oh, like, I'm not supposed to X, Y, Z, to, oh, wow, like, this potentiality there is beautiful. And, you know, I will never forget, like, the um, the first time I got there, um, I went into the, 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 so Bridgetown, which is the, the, the part of the Cape Flats in, in South Africa, in, in Cape Town, um, which is kind of, like, very crime-ridden and, and high unemployment and so on. And, you know, they're, like, it's, it's mostly kind of, um, uh, you know, black community um, that, that lives there. And, you know, there's obviously a big racial divide in, in South Africa. And uh, I will never forget when I came there the first time and uh, I asked one of the kids, um, so, hey, um, you know, one day will you be at the University of Cape Town, like on the mountain, you know, when like they look up and they would be like, no, 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 that's for the white people. Like, that's not for us. And so that broke my heart, right? Because you're like, wow, like there is this kind of idea that like, this is for some part of the population, this is for the other part of the population. And, and, and what I found fascinating about the reconstructed living maps model is to say, no, we start imagining how it could be that some of us could be there. And then we kind of like work with the government to remove some of the structural constraints. And we, we work with other partners to do something around this. But actually then at the end of the day, we in a way, uh, what was fascinating to see is how the University of Cape Town now comes to them because they found an amazing kind of uh, model, model of doing this. But long story short, I, what I really appreciated about them was the community-drivenness where it really came from, 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 from kind of like not the government coming in and, and pushing things on people, but people being the ones who shaped it and, and working together with the government. And I think, you know, to, to me, um, that idea of, of, in a way, seeing what is already here and then kind of working based on this with others versus like, you know, um, I, I feel like, you know, I mean, this is, it's a very long answer to a short question, but, you know, one of the things that I've, I've always kind of dreaded was, you know, especially when you come as, as someone, you know, from a Western context, um, I started working in, in, in Kenya 10 years ago. Um, and when I went the first time to Kenya and South Africa, I asked one of the, the, uh, the guys who work with this organization, what should I never ask you as, as the kind of white kid coming into your context here? And, and they said, well, never ask us what we need. Because if you ask, as, as a first question, because if you ask us what we need, you put us into the, like, in, in the position of a victim, of a beneficiary, of someone who needs something from you. Versus if you come in and say, what's already here? What can we do together? And then we can still talk about resources later. But essentially, this is much more symmetric. And to me, this always stuck because it's about this idea of how do I, you know, how do I essentially enable like this idea that, we can, we have agency, we have some kind of agency and, and, and we have to, 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 to do something with this agency, but then obviously also being part of removing structural constraints. And um, I think that really starts in childhood, you know, in terms of how we can, can do something about this. But that was a very long answer to a very short question. No, I think it's very good. And also you kind of lay the blueprint and foundation for um, what to do if you are trying to cultivate psychological safety on your team. Like, mm -hmm. I think there's a lesson there to be learned and applied um, as well. So thank you very much for that. I really appreciated it. Uh, so let's talk about networking events, right? We, we touched on a little bit earlier, um, but just to make it extremely clear for the audience out there, suppose we're at, we're at a networking event. What can we do or how can we change the way that we speak to ensure that we're opening ourselves up for this serendipity? I'm a huge fan, especially if, if, if one is more introverted, to 
start like to to at the beginning uh, talk with the hosts, talk with the key people who are the kind of key multipliers. Because if we can seed an idea with them, if we can seed something with them, they will talk with so many other people so they can become our ambassadors. So let's say we have a new business idea or something we want to seed in the room. And that's a lot about saying, okay, let's talk about the key people who could then talk with other people. Then we don't have to do it ourselves. Um, but obviously we always have to um, in, in, in either way. But I'm also a big fan of, of, of focusing on really developing meaningful relationships because I think a lot of times people focus on this. Let's meet as many people as possible. Let's kind of maximize X, Y, Z. But that's not how you actually develop really interesting things, right? Really interesting things take time. Really interesting relationships take time. And so I'm a big fan of... Um, you know, I, I, I've seen that with myself and others that when you go into a room, you you energetically see, right, which are the people who kind of have green energy, quote-unquote, versus red energy. Um, and, and, and I think when I was younger, I forced a lot of times speaking with those with the red energy because I was like, no, but I still want to convince everyone. I want to be everywhere. And then at some point, I realized, you know what? Like the real serendipity happens talking with a green energy person or someone who really kind of where I feel there's some kind of resonance because that people will probably know someone else who might have X, Y, Z anyways. And so it's the point being that I think at networking events, kind of forcing oneself to speak with people um, that, 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 that is important, but also I think um, speaking with those that we feel really kind of a resonance with us versus trying to force stuff that, that, that doesn't make sense. And I think we talked about, right, the kind of questions, asking questions differently and getting away from just asking what do you do to asking things like, what did you find most inspiring about the presentation before? Or, you know, just something that opens up that opportunity space where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence um, can, can really help. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Uh, for those listening, the energies, I believe that's from the DISC profile, D-I-S-C. Um, so definitely check that out. I'll leave a link to that. Last formal question before we jump into a super quick lightning round. And that is, it's 100 years in the future what do you want to be remembered for? It's a great question. I'm, I'm a big fan of Mark Twain, um, who you know has this whole thing around you, you, you regret the things you haven't done, but also this kind of idea of um, that in a way, when you look back, um, you know, uh, you should always come from that perspective. So I love the question of, of really kind of thinking about why are we here in the first place, right? And I think to me, um, you know, I think the next 10, 20 years of my life um, will be around this kind of content around the serendipity mindset has become my life philosophy and a daily practice. And I've seen, I've, I've gotten so much joy from it, so much enthusiasm. I've seen it work in most contexts around the world. And so um, I think if I can, in a way, get that into curricula, if I can get that to as many people as possible, especially those who might not necessarily yet be in that kind of mindset, um, who might, um, you know, kind of believe that luck is something that, you can't really influence them and things like that. Um, I've seen how quickly when you do small nudges and small kind of behavioral changes, how quickly people then get into that rhythm. And especially those who are like, oh my God, this is not me, actually then get almost addicted to it. They're like, oh my God, like my life has so much more joy to it. So I think if, if you know, if, if, if it can be around saying like, this is, you know, someone who helped us turn anxiety um, towards the unexpected into kind of making the unexpected an ally and making uncertainty an ally rather than a threat, I think then, then that would have felt meaningful to me. And especially I think in those contexts where we don't have um, the, the kind of, you know, I mean, my, a lot of my work is in low-income contexts. And I think that is where I feel 
Um, I want to focus a lot of my energy also on how we can influence government policy and other things around how do we think about societal opportunity spaces that allow people to have a higher serendipity base level because I feel that's where then a lot of the kind of real development will come from where people can create their own luck once we remove the barriers to them actually creating it which is what a lot of unfortunately structural inequality does. Thank you very much for that. It was wonderful talking to you. We'll go into a real quick uh, random round. I know we are short on uh, time, but everybody go get this book. Speaking of the book, where can people find it? It's on www.theserendipitymindset.com. It's everywhere, Amazon, bookstores, um, The Serendipity Mindset, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. And I'm on Twitter at Chris, Chris Serendipity. Awesome. So quick lightning round question here. What are you currently reading? Well, I've been rereading Viktor Frankl, like, you know, literally the third time, because I feel there's always, you know, you reread it all, all, all the time. Um, I've all also reread the book Attached, which is a wonderful book around attachment styles. And, you know, I just got into a new relationship. So trying to understand how to make sure that it um, is, is a wonderful one. What song do you currently have on repeat? Good question. Good question. You know, I'm really bad with like songs and everything else. I, I love you too. And the kind of beautiful day for it's kind of both the emotion in it and the, and the, the, the kind of, you know, positiveness that comes from it, but also the kind of tragedy that is in it. I love it. So last question here, we're going to go to a uh, random question generator. <laughs> you know, all right. Who are some of your heroes? <laughs> That's great. That's a cool thing, by the way. This <laughs> generator. Obviously, I love randomness, so that's wonderful. Yeah. To see. Um, but um, so I definitely, um, I, I always loved the idea um, that Megra Mead had around that small groups of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. So I always loved that kind of idea. Um, but my biggest hero definitely is, is Socrates. Um, I, you know, I would love to hang out with him back, you know, in the Greek days and. Uh, you know, he was obviously framing a lot of questions um, that we still ask, right? Uh, why do we do things? How do we do things? And so I feel um, Socrates is definitely one of my biggest heroes. What was your best birthday? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I'm grateful for every birthday I have, you know, being aware of how quickly you might not have a birthday anymore. Um, but I think my, my 30th was great because it was that kind of, you know, being with good friends. Um, I was in London at the time, which was beautiful. There's a lot of nostalgia related to it. Dr. Bush, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really appreciate you coming on to the show. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for the great energy. I mean, I love the, the kind of grounded, positive energy. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you.